0: And this is Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 88. And today I want to talk a little bit about homardiology, which is the study of sin and demonology and the connection of demonology and homardiology, at least to start with, and then we'll get into faith and its supreme importance in this age. Before we get started, I want to express my solidarity with Fred Ferguson, our leader in the Mississippi Tape Group or Mississippi Church, the DVD Church. As his father this week departed to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's always hard on this side when we lose a loved one, especially if there's a... A relationship of deep and abiding love as Fred did, had with his dad. And So Fred, our hearts are with you. You're in our heart. And I know that we're in yours, both to die and to live together. And so our condolences and comfort and our prayers for the comfort of the Father and the Son personally for you and Mary Helen, Jack, and Selah. And Father we ask now that you will allow for the accurate communication of your truth to the upbuilding of your people. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote a systematic theology and in the third volume of it, the third and last volume, near the end he wrote this: The eschatological perfecting of the world for participation in the glory of God will also show how wrong is unbelief with its doubting of God's existence, for it will prove the love of God, the creator, for his creatures. I'm grateful that Pannenberg expect the eschatological perfecting of the world for participation in the glory of God, because that's the message throughout in the scriptures. And I was intrigued to find that that perfecting, that glorious perfecting, is not only going to be a time in which the faith of the faithful in this age will be commended, according to 1 Peter 1.7, But unbelief will be shown as to just how wrong it was with its doubting of God's existence. I was also glad to see and delighted to agree that the eschatological perfecting of the world for participation in the glory of God, which is also called the apocatastasis or the restoration of all things, It's called the universal restoration or the universal reconciliation. It's called the new creation of all things. It's called many things in the scriptures, including the universal regeneration. And that, in fact, is one of the things that faith expects. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And mostly what is hoped for is the world being glorified and God being magnified in a new creation. With that said, Hebrews 3.12 says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Instead, keep encouraging one another every day, as long as it's called today in order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. Being hardened by the deceptiveness of sin is being made callous against faith by the aeon, the age, the present age. I'm going to give a definition of that somewhere along the line in this message. It means to be made inwardly callous by the deceptiveness of the one who's called the serpent, by the seduct- seductiveness of what are called vagabond spirits. Unclean, vagabond spirits are described by Jesus himself Jesus was able to see into the demonic realm as well as the angelic realm. He saw his father, but he also said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. And so his studies on demonology are accurate. Now this is an important thing. I went to bed last night asking God for insight and woke up with this insight. And this recall from the scriptures. So no matter what I prepare for Hebrews, something generally pops up and interrupts. And thankfully, it's the Holy Spirit. Unclean, vagabond spirits, or wanderers, nomads we could call them, are described by Jesus as going about in waterless places. Matthew twelve forty three. They travel about, he says, in spiritually dry places, which we would call deserts. And they cause wandering hearts in people, hearts that withdraw from the living God in unbelief. Now, God speaks in Hebrews 3.10, Saying of the desert generation, they're always led astray in heart. This, of course, is a quote from the Septuagint of Psalm 94.10, 3.10. They're always led astray in heart. That's interiorly. Now, though Hebrews 3.10 does not say explicitly what or who caused them to wander, God does say that those who refused to listen to His, his voice were always caused to wander. The, the verb that He uses for wandering is the word where we get the English word "planet," and it's the word "planao." P. L. A. N. A. Omega O. Planao. This is the word He uses in the Greek text to describe the hearts of the desert generation but it's in the passive voice which means they are caused to wander they're made to wander he doesn't say what made them wander or who made them wander they were caused to wander now though hebrews 3:10 does not say explicitly what or identify who caused them to wander God does say that those who refused to listen were always caused to wander, planao, in the passive voice. They were always being caused to wander. Now if we pair these insights, that is the insight that there are unclean spirits who wander in waterless places, with the insight that the desert generation under Moses were continually caused to wander in their hearts, we get the suggestion that demonic influence was involved. Demonic influence is involved in unbelief. That's how Pannenberg can rightly say that unbelief is so wrong. Now in Matthew, in the Matthew context, Matthew 12:43, if you back up a little bit in Matthew, the unclean wandering spirits are spoken of in connection with the evil generation who seek a sign, a visible sign. And to whom Jesus said, "No sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah." Now, the sign of Jonah has everything to do with the word of the cross, what Paul called the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians one eighteen, Because Jonah, being three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, is a type of Jesus, the Son of Man, being in the heart of the earth, following his death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. Now, let's add to that something into the mix here. In 1 Timothy 4.1, the Holy Spirit does speak explicitly of deceitful spirits. So you can compare Matthew 12.43 with 1 Timothy 4.1. Deceitful spirits who mislead and who cause people to wander away from the faith and even to apostatize from it, to wander away from operating with a true heart of unfeigned faith, which has been spoken of in 1 Timothy 1.5. Now this is an explicit vatic oracle, or prophetic oracle, which pertains to what 1 Timothy 4.1 calls later times, so it could apply very much to our own times. The generation that considers the word of the cross to be non-essential or even to be foolish is a generation who perishes. They are a generation who is caused to wander in their hearts. Now consider this word perishing," that's used in First 1 Corinthians 118 because it's used again in second Corinthians four. Three, something happens in those who are perishing the God of this age blinds their minds and that's going to be a significant thing to consider the generation that considers the word of the cross to be non-essential and even foolish is a generation that perishes They are a generation who is caused to wander in their hearts and to be hardened or calloused by the deceptiveness of sin. And it is said that they are blinded by the God of this age. Now, that's a terrible thing to happen. If our whole theme is we see Jesus, then for the heart to be blinded is catastrophic. So, in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, we have a connection here between hamartiology, which is the study of sin, from the Greek word hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. So, we have hamartiology. We also have demonology. And there's a connection between these. The study of demon spirits, oppositional spirits, adverse spirits. Hamartia, hamartiology. This is the hamartiology of Hebrews. The warning not to be hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. So there's a connection here between homardiology and demonology, or we could even call it satanology. People are hardened by sin when their minds are blinded by the God of this age. Hardness and blindness are both related in the scriptures. People are hardened by sin when their minds are blinded. So it's kind of like a hardening of the arteries of the eyes of the heart. The hardness and the blindness are related. People are hardened by sin when their minds are blinded by the God of this age. This age is evil. The God of this age is the evil one. And he does this to those who are unbelieving. Paul wrote, and again he wrote explicitly, and I'm going to quote it in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. For if our gospel is concealed or veiled, it is hidden from those who are perishing. There it is again, perishing. doesn't mean they're going to hell. It means they're stuck in this age and blinded from the light of the truth. And they are also dislodged from hope and they have lost the moorings, which is an anchor in the soul. They have no anchor in the soul. They're wandering. They're without restraint. So if our gospel is concealed, it's hidden from those who are perishing, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they cannot see, and that, of course, is see with the eyes of the heart, the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. Now, if we can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God, then we can't be conformed into the image of God, which is Christ, which we see with the eyes of our heart. Now, this is how we come to understand the deceptiveness of sin. It's deceptive because it's linked to deceptive spirits. We call them vagabond spirits, at least I do, because they travel aimlessly about in dry places and they affect hearts to wander, to depart from the living God with a heart that's evilly affected by unbelief. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing unbelief with sin is that unbelief is the essence of sin. The very essence of sin is unbelief. Hebrews places before us the decision whether we will be aimless wanderers or pilgrims with a destination in the New Jerusalem. Wanderers wander. They drift. Drifters drift. Pilgrims have a destination. We can't let the New Jerusalem into our minds if our minds are being blinded by the God of this age. My prayer for this generation is that God would once again command that light would shine in darkness, as he did in Genesis 1-3. And that this time, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ would shine into the hearts of this generation. And by this generation, I mean the older people of what is called the greatest generation in America and across this world all the way down to the infants and children. And we could even include the yet unborn. Sin as unbelief is lack of confidence in the 100% efficacy of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Sin as unbelief is lack of confidence in the 100% efficacy of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is a lack of assurance in hoped-for things, a lack of conviction of unseen things, and it's a deficiency of eternal values. It's a failure of action and decision rooted in sound judgments that are grounded in divinely given insights. I'll say that again because there's a lot to it. It's a failure of action and decision, or decision and action, rooted in sound judgments that are grounded in divinely given insights. Now, we came to Hebrews by way of Romans. Romans 14.23b says that everything does does not proceed from a settled conviction that such a thing is approved by God is sin. In other words, if you're thinking of doing something and you don't have the settled conviction by faith that it's something God approves, then it's sin to do it. In Paul's apocalyptic view of sin, with a capital S, As a personified enemy, human sin or unbelief is complicity with the reign of sin or the kingdom of sin. It's opposed to the law of the cross. If without faith it is impossible to please God, and that is the case according to Hebrews 11.6, then how God must be displeased by unbelief. Now we came to Hebrews via the Gospel of John, too, years ago. In the Gospel of John, sin is equated with unbelief. There, unbelief is the essence of sin, once again. This is the case because unbelief, not believing, that is, is disobedience to the sole command of God, the only command of God in the Gospel of John, which is to believe in the one whom God has sent. In John 6, 29. In John 16, 9, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit that when he comes, he convicts the world, notice this, the way this is said, he convicts the world of sin, because they don't believe in me. The essence of sin is unbelief. Unbelief is the very essence and source of all sin. The same kind of thing pertains in Hebrews. In Hebrews 3.12, the PT warns his readers to watch out, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Now, he doesn't want, and I don't want, anyone to have the experience in the eschatological perfecting of the world for participation in the glory of God to stand there ashamed because we've been affected all our lives by an evil heart of unbelief. Because unbelief will be shown just how wrong it is. God will show just how wrong it is and how wrong we were not to trust that God's love for his creation is unrestricted unconditional inescapable unstoppable the writer continues In 3.13, and he says, Instead, keep encouraging one another every day, as long as it's called today, in order that no one of you is hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. Now you see the word sin in 3.13, unbelief in 3.12. You get the idea that sin is unbelief, that unbelief is the essence of sin. There's a juxtaposition of unbelief and sin here, just as in John 16.9. Sin is unbelief in me, Jesus said. So, in fact, the words can be used interchangeably. If sin is lawlessness, as John says in 1 John 3, 5, and it is, then the lawlessness he speaks of is simply a violation of the command of God to believe in his son. And that belief in his son eventually morphs through the divine mission number two into loving one another. Lawlessness or sin is characterized by a disobedience to that commandment. So when Jesus' disciples asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires of us? Jesus answered, This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. You say, I thought it was love one another. Well, there is no love one another unless there's believe in the one whom God sent. Because to love one another is to love one another as he loves. But that's a different subject. Well, not really. It's on point. Now, if unbelief is the essence of sin, then to not believe in the one whom God sent is to sin and to fall short of the glory of God, the glory that God intends for us. Really, it's to fall short of what it means to truly be human. All sinned, as John teaches, because the world is convicted of it, and Romans also says, all sinned, and all sin in this way. No human being is born believing in the Son of God. But when the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, he also evokes faith in the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John's Gospel, He's called the spirit of grace in the Hebrews homily, and he's called the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13. He is the spirit who evokes faith, and the spirit will be poured out on all flesh means that the spirit will evoke faith in every human being eventually and ultimately, that's also taught in Ephesians four thirteen, until we all come the unity of the faith, etc. And I'm going to hit that in a moment. Now, if the Lord says, only believe, as he does in John six twenty nine, as he does in Isaiah seven nine, only believe and you will be established. As he says in Mark five thirty six, do not fear, only believe. Then to withdraw from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief is the essence of sin, of falling short of the glory of God, of the glory that God intends for us. To fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23, is what Hebrews calls falling short of the promise to enter God's rest. We're only truly, fully human when we enter God's rest. God's rest is God's glory. It's the Sabbath that is still extant, still commanded of the people of God, still to be entered in a joyous celebration. Now, when the Scripture urges us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not, listen what it says, with all of our heart, The opposite of an evil heart of unbelief is a trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts. When the Bible commands us, the Scripture urges us, the Spirit commands us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding in Proverbs three five, Or when it says, let him trust in the name of Yahweh, let him lean on his God, In Isaiah 50 in verse 10. Then to refuse to trust in the name of the Lord or to lean on our God is to be hardened by the deceptiveness of sin. Now some of you who like all these messages in Hebrews might not like this one. This is exhortation. It's warning. Might even involve some rebuke. If we're ever to come out of the wilderness or the desert of our wandering, it will be while we're leaning on our beloved, as Song of Solomon 8.5 says. The lover of the shepherd is pictured as coming up out of the desert, out of the dry place, by leaning on her beloved. And the beloved is Jesus Christ. If we are ever to enter God's rest, it will be by faith, in the Lord who vanquishes our enemies in the land that we're entering. By saying that unbelief is the essence of sin, now listen carefully to this because I've already caught the rationalizations that are going to come down the road when people hear this down the road. I've already caught it and I'm going to bat it back. To say that unbelief is the essence of sin and that all sin is rooted in unbelief, in a refusal to trust in the name of the Lord, does not say that adultery is not a sin, or that stealing is not a sin, or that lying is not a sin. It's simply to say that unbelief is the essence of sin, and that all Sins are rooted in unbelief. For example, the thief says, I need this and I don't believe that the Lord will provide it for me, so I'll take it. Or, let's call this reparation for injustices of the past. That's the thief's rationalization. The adulterer says, this can't be wrong, because he's so right for me, and I don't trust the Lord to sustain me, or to change my husband. The liar says, I have to tell them I'm not a Christian, or I'll pay a terrible price. I have to tell them that. I can't trust the Lord with the consequences. All sin is grounded in unbelief, just as all that pleases God on the opposite pole is faith. Implicit trust in him. Trust with the whole heart that he is faithful. Faithful is simply trust in the faithfulness of God. In fact, it's a participation in that faithfulness ultimately. We trust with the whole heart that he is faithful. He is faithful who is promised. In Hebrews 10.23 and Hebrews 11.11. 11. We believe the promises not just because they seem reasonable on their face. Some of them don't. But because he who promised is faithful and able to do what he promised. And most of the promises of God go way beyond what we could ask or pray for, or imagine. Now, in the case of the initial recipients of the Hebrews homily, the evil heart of unbelief withdraws from the living God in a kind of counter-conversion, a retrogression, by returning to the earlier practices, for example, for them, offering animal sacrifices, participation in ritual purification ceremonial feasts etc keeping holy days under penalty this action can only be explained as a refusal to trust in the name of the Lord and to lean on the living God it's a failure to trust the great King to take care of them in an environment in their case a failure to trust him to care for them in an environment of social shaming and threats of a lot worse. The danger was to become hardened or resolved to return to such practices, not with a true heart or a purified conscience or with faith or with leaning on their God, but in fear of social, political, and religious reprisal. If these readers were operative with a true heart and with faith in God's faithfulness, they would be progressing, not retrogressing. They would be progressing on a progression line into the land of their inheritance. For them, to retrogress was like returning to Egypt, just like for us to retrogress... Is to return to Egypt or it's like remaining in the wilderness wandering without a sense of purpose or a sense of destiny it's like being a nomad or a vagabond rather than a pilgrim with a destination someone who's let the new Jerusalem come into her or his mind all who will live godly and that means all who will live in faith without exception will suffer some form of persecution. You can't operate in a world characterized by unbelief in the living God as one who believes and who acts on faith. You can't live in such a world by faith without incurring the displeasure and even the wrath of the unbelieving world. Now, sin is deceptive because it presents itself as a good, as a humanly good thing, as a good thing, or even a divinely beneficial thing. It disguises itself as such. Esha, the wife of Ish, or Eve, the wife of Adam, as she's also known, and as he's also known. Eve was deceived, notice that word deceived, by the old serpent who was said to be the most subtle beast of the field, the whole field of creation, in other words, the most attractive, not repulsive. This serpent that deceived the woman was not a repulsive creature, but the most clever, the most intriguing, the most Engaging, the most attractive, the most seemingly wise, and the most deceptive. Eve was first beguiled by him. As they say today, it starts with just coffee. Second Corinthians 11, 2 to 4. She looked upon the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as something that somehow had the power to make her smarter. That's what it says, Genesis 3, 1-6. to She no doubt rationalized with thoughts like, I'm worth it. Or, I can have it all. I don't need Adam to tell me what God said. I don't even need God. I can be like God, and I neither need that man or his God. Those are the thoughts that arise from a heart that's wandering or being caused to wander by a very brilliant creature. Sin is personified as deceptive just as the serpent is personified in the Genesis account as being subtle. The word used to describe him is phronimos, that's P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S in the septuagint. Phronimos has the usual positive meaning of wisdom or prudence, the kind of person you want to go for or go to for advice and counsel. But here it has a slight twist that denotes shrewdness or even craftiness and implies the seductiveness of a manipulator I don't have to tell you the world is full of manipulators today users it's a word that applies to those whom Jesus calls the sons of this age now we've had the God of this age Second Corinthians 4.3, Jesus talks about the sons of this age. Not the sons of the messianic age. The sons of this age. He talks about them in Luke 16.8 and 9. They're called hoi huioi tu aonas tu tu. They are the sons of this present evil age. They're good at being sons of the age. Sons of the age means they're experts in being evil. Jesus contrasted the sons of this age and another group with another group called Tus Huius Tu Photos, the sons of light the sons of light, the sons of the light. And he said the sons of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation, meaning their own kind, than the sons of light. And by saying that, he encouraged the sons of light to use worldly resources to help others. Use this world, don't abuse it. It's got goods that can be used for beneficial, beneficent, and benevolent purposes. Knowing that when we leave this world, Jesus said in Luke 16, 9, we can compare this wonderfully with 2 Corinthians 5, 1, when we leave this world, it will be to enter an eternal habitation. In other words, use this world's goods to be beneficent toward others because when you leave this world, you're not going to go home to a home that can blow up or burn or decay or fall apart. You're going home to a home that's an eternal habitation. The sons of this age are like the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, those who bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. They're shrewd, they're clever, they're manipulative, they're sometimes attractive, and young ladies, they may often say to you, or even say to you, I love you. That's just no extra charge for that little piece of advice. They're shrewd, they're clever, they're manipulative. Sometimes, if not often, they're attractive. They're often intellectually impressive. Sometimes very talented. Some of them become professors or politicians. Or sometimes evangelists or pastors. So, growing love always needs to be flanked by insight and discernment. Philippians 1.9. The scripture promises that we will all come. Now listen, this is another phase of the message, but it's going to close hard like it opened hard. We're going to deviate just for a moment with a hopeful interlude. The scripture promises that we will all come to the unity of the faith and the true and full insight that is the knowledge of the Son of God, and that we will all attain the stature of complete adult humanity, a stature that's measured and manifested by Christ's fullness, or his pleroma, as the scripture calls it. John 1.16 says, Likewise, we've all received grace after grace from his fullness, ectuos pleromatos, his pleroma. Now, we may ask, who is meant by all that we will all come in the unity of the faith to the measure of the stature that is Jesus Christ himself, the measure of what true humanity is in glory? Who is meant by all in Ephesians 4.13 and John one sixteen, And we may be tempted to say, as I have said in the past myself, Well, that means all of us who have believed. But then we'd have to look back at Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, where it says that the mystery of God's will, and I refer you, in fact, I recommend that you listen to 1229, December 29th's message of 2019. There's a couple of prophetic intimations there. There's a communion service at the end of it. And incidentally, we will be having a communion service in increment 90, which is a couple messages from now. So get your elements ready if you want to for wherever you are. If you look back at Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, where it says that the mystery of God's will is that God intends to sum up all things, and that includes all rational beings, in Christ. Furthermore, we'd have to consider that in Christ all will be made alive in 1 Corinthians 15 22, and that all will receive justification in Romans 5 18. And we'd have to consider that in Christ not only will all be made alive, but that every tongue is to confess. With praise that Yahweh is Yeshua, or that the Lord is Jesus, to the glory of God the Father, while every knee bows to Him in glad and worshipful allegiance. Now I say that from Romans fourteen eleven, in combination with Philippians two nine to eleven, and with reference to Isaiah forty five twenty three, which is from where it's quoted. Now that sounds to me remarkably like every person, all of humanity, in all of its times, will come to the solidarity of faith and faithfulness. So, according to Ephesians four thirteen, in connection with Philippians two nine to eleven and 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, the universal confession and genuflection will be made by all of humanity who will have not only come to faith in Jesus Christ, but to the knowledge of the Son of God that is only had when one has been fully conformed to the image of the Son of God. So that's the knowledge of the Son of God that only comes when one has come to the kind of human stature of which Jesus Christ is the archetype. For the archetype of humanity... Is the antitype of Adam let me say that again the archetype of humanity is the antitype of Adam by that I mean Jesus is the antitype of Adam and therefore he is the second and final single inclusive representative sir of all humanity Adam was inclusive of all of humanity as a type Christ must be inclusive Of all humanity as an anti type as in Adam all die so all the same all will be made alive in Christ that all will be made alive in Christ means all of humanity in all of its times so when the scripture says until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God Knowledge, again, that is only realized by conformity with him. When we are like him in the beatific vision, when we see him as he is, there'll be no unbelievers. But we will also see how wrong unbelief has been. So I say when the scripture says until we all come into the unity of faith and that means all of humanity in all of its times. But let me show you how a universalist Christian can depart from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief through an evil rationalization that sounds just like this. Someone says, okay then, well if that's true and I've already believed in Jesus then I'm just going to live like I want to and let the day come when it will Now if someone does say that and who live and then they decide to live by that credo you know what they're revealing that they've been hardened by the deceptiveness of sin They have failed to recognize that there is an eternally significant reason why they have been awakened to faith in the course of this life, while others haven't. And that there is an eternally and everlastingly significant reason that they were awakened to faith during this current age that is branded by unbelief, they, I'll say it now, we, who have been awakened to faith, have a responsibility to walk by faith, to purify ourselves of the old self who was dominated by unbelief and regulated by the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 2. Now, I'm going to close with something by R.C. Trench. R.C. Trench. His books include Synonyms of the New Testament, which was written in 1855. So he's an old time scholar. He's quoted by one of my early readings. Kenneth S. Weist, who wrote word studies in the Greek New Testament. That's how I cut my teeth on the Greek Testament, New Testament with him and A.T. Robertson way back in the 70s and 80s of the last millennium. Kenneth Weist put together a quote from R.C. Trench, and R.C. Trench quotes within his quote, a German scholar named Bengel, B-E-N-G-E-L. Johann Albrecht Bengel is a Lutheran priest, or was a Lutheran priest, a clergyman and a Greek language scholar who lived from 1687 to 1752, and his works include Noman of the New Testament. And so there were two Greek language experts that are quoted by Weis. Now, listen to this combination. I read this in the 70s, and this definition stuck with me since then because to me it's the most accurate description of the evil age, of the present world as it's segregated from God. And here it is. R.C. Trench defined the age as, quote, all that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitute a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale again inevitably to exhale all this is included in the aion or age which is as bengal has expressed it the subtle notice that word subtle as used in genesis 3 1 subtle, informing spirit of the cosmos or world of men who are living alienated and apart from God. There it is, the age. Hasn't been said better than that since. I haven't read another definition in the tens of thousands of pages of theological readings I've done since then. I've never read a better definition of what the age is than that. And it gives you the sense that what people say today, the ideologies of today, and the bywords of today, the catchphrases of today that are repeated endlessly, are commanded by the prince of the power of the air that they breathe in and that they exhale. That's the age that we're not to be conformed to. We are to... By the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. I just described it. Conclusion. Here's the conclusion. We must be oriented to an otherworldly city, like Abraham was, In Hebrews 11.10, we must be oriented to an altogether otherworldly city through attentiveness to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. For all that's in this world during the course of this evil age is geared toward unbelief. So we thank you, Father, today for this challenge, a challenge that's necessary to begin 2021 because the temptations to withdraw from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief will be profoundly effective in this age, and we already are armed against it. To be forewarned is to be forearmed against this movement away from God. And so we do pray, Father, that you who commanded light to shine in the darkness in Genesis 1-3 will command light again to shine into this generation, giving the light, the true light, that is the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of one Jesus Christ, shines in the face of Jesus Christ, shines in the face of the one great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. God is great, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen.